0: Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madam. The podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast and I'm your host Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Connor Sherman. Connor is currently VP of Security at Clear after recently leaving Apollo Global Management as Director of Cybersecurity. Connor has successfully built, redesigned and reinvigorated cybersecurity programs for fast-paced, high-performing companies. By leveraging security orchestration and automation and machine learning techniques, Connor delivers highly effective security operation centers, threat intelligence and hunting capabilities. The programs are aligned with business objectives and bring exponential threat reduction with incremental investment. He takes a hands-on leadership style and builds programs with a first principle mindset following the Agile methodology. Hope you enjoy it. Beachy Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the podcast today, Connor.
1: Thank you for having me, Carl. I appreciate
0: it. So let's start from the beginning. Where were you born?
1: So I was born um, in Wakefield, England. And I was born in England, and when I was about five years old, my family decided to move us out. And so we spent about a decade moving through, um, excuse me, about six more years working through Europe, and then we landed in the States when I was about nine.
0: Okay, so you... you <laughs> well, I mean, you were moving quite often, so what were your parents doing? Was it something to do with their careers that caused you caused you to move?
1: No, it's just my parents were the a place where they're like, you know, the kids are young, we want to travel. You know, my dad was working in technology, and so... At a time when it was a massive need kind of like today in security uh, and he had the skill set so said, let's just go do it so off we went from holland to england certainly from england to holland from holland to luxembourg and then over to the uh to the states
0: so where would you say you mainly grew up a little
1: bit of everywhere i often get that question like where do you call home where do you you know where are you citizen of what do you like what do you identify with And honestly, I just find myself, identify where I'm living at this point in time, which is lovely New York City. Um, So I consider myself American and a New Yorker at this point, although most New Yorkers would probably laugh at me if I called myself a New Yorker, but um, (laughs) that's it. So I I grew up a lot, uh, spent a lot of time, former times in the States, particularly California, and also particularly in the mountains of California, which is interesting, and also very small towns and rural places in California.
0: Talk to us about your education.
1: So, education wise was fun. So, starting very young, my parents, you know, like so many, like my parents were militantly focused on education. That was their number one priority when I was growing up. So, I always had the blessing of having really solid education all the way through. Um, but, and that also looked like between third and eighth grade, I was homeschooled. So, a bit of a twist. It was like I was going through all the normal schools in Europe. And then, as we stepped into the United States, we had like half a year. Or actually, as we left, Holland, or Luxembourg, one of those countries, Luxembourg came to the States, we just moved over to homeschooling and kind of like augmented that with a few things, with a few classes outside of that, but there was that for a while, and then I went through to high school for two years, but then skipped high school and went straight to college, Um, did that for a little while, and then as I got going in my professional career, I started that nice and young, but then I ran my bachelor's degree in parallel to that. So I kind of a strange tangential journey of running things in parallel and doing it differently. But formalized education was always top of mind for my parents.
0: Yes. And uh, and uh, I think, you know, we, obviously we've known each other a while now and you, how long did it take you to get your degree?
1: I would love to say I got a PhD, but I got a bachelor's in seven years. So okay. between all the, <laughs> the junior college and between doing a couple of years there, switching my major three times, um, sw- moving different states twice you know it's, it takes time and then also was a gap year in there so yeah 7 years no phd but i got a bachelor's
0: so once you completed your degree mm. what did you go and do next
1: oh so for me it well, like i mentioned it wasn't linear in that sense so i got my i started off my getting my degree in computer science then i moved to economics and then i switched it again to business management And so, when I finally got my degree in business management, um, with the expectation being there that I would learn a language that I could translate cybersecurity into the rest of the world, right? That was the objective with that degree. As I kind of came out of that, I was already well under my way for my career. So I'd already done multiple years of consulting. I was building a security program for an asset management firm in the Boston area, and so it wasn't like the degree unleashed me to go. Start my career. It was just an augmentation running in parallel to the things that I already started.
0: So, yeah. So when did you? When was the first time you come across cybersecurity?
1: So, okay. So the slightly longer story, but we won't go into everything unless you want to. Um, so let's talk <laughs> about just secure. Let's talk about security. Then I'll get into cybersecurity. So I have had. Um, a real deep fascination with police force and police work my entire life. I really have. Um, and I think it started when I was three years old and I ran away from home. And by that, I mean, I decided that, not three, like three or four. I decided to I'm going to go meet my father at work today. I grabbed my you know, postman, Pat's what we had in England, grabbed my postman, Pat briefcase and out the door. I went. And that was my first experience with the cops. As I about to step onto a train, which would take me to God knows where. He greeted or grabbed my shoulder and said, are you Connor Sherman? And I said, yes, he's like, good, come with me, and brought me to the, uh, me to the police station. So I've had, like, a lot of weird, ex- good experiences like that with the police force growing up. So when I got into about 14, 15 years old, at a, my town had this police cadet program. And effectively, you ride along with a police officer, you train with a police officer, but you're not actually a licensed officer. You, so will they make you do all the paperwork. You still have to do all the physical training, but you don't get to carry a gun or anything like that. So I was doing that at the same time my father was a pastor. At a, um, at a small town in California. And if you think about it, like when you're in need and you're poor, you're broke, and you're in need, who do you call? And when situations get bad, it's one of two people. It's either the cops or your minister, your pastor, your priest. So I had this strange time in my life where I was being very exposed to people in need, but from two different angles. And there was this level of like, you start to see where the emotional, the spiritual, and the physical security kind of all are interwoven. So that all happened to me at a very formative time in my life, and I was like, wow, like there's an opportunity where you can help people in their hour of mo- their desperate hour of need, even when they don't know what they need or they understand or, or can perceive the threats or can understand the risks that they're in, they just know they need help, and so they reach out to somebody who hopefully will, you know, pick up the ball and run with it. And so I kind of like was that was clicking for me at the same time, I'm like, oh, maybe police work is for me. And then I realized instantly I hate paperwork. So I was like, okay, I'm done. No, I can't be a cop. But I <laughs> did discover Linux at that same time. And so I'm like, okay, at the same time, all this is happening. I'm spending my Saturdays and my late nights just hacking away on Ubuntu um, boxes and just trying to like piece together, you know, compiling my own wires and all that. And really that got me into the exposure to a technical community who really cared about technical security. This is well before it was called cybersecurity. And I was like, ah, there's something here. I like this ability to understand a problem set deeply from an engineering perspective, take a step back, see how it applies to people in ways that they may not understand, Um, right? Like cybersecurity is a confusing field. And then be able to swing around the other side and say, but let me help you solve this problem in a way you understand in translating it and, you know, that was then expressed in like the business management degrees and the way of kind of trying to break things down for people who are outside the pure cybersecurity discipline. So, long answer to your question, how I got into the cybersecurity, but really it was those components.
0: Well, the next question may be even longer. So, what does cybersecurity okay. mean to you?
1: Uh, cybersecurity, it's... Cybersecurity is about confidence really. And it's about, for me, a healthy cybersecurity program brings to an organization, brings to a team, brings to anybody who's collected themselves around a mission a confidence that the product they're bringing to market, the technology they're using to amplify their voice and their mission, has integrity, and with that integrity they can get trust, and with all of that bundled together they have confidence in the technology and platforms they're using. So, cybersecurity to me is a way that you can really leverage, really have your technology and all your processes and pe- people and all those pieces wrapped up in a way that goes back to confidence. So um, that's what it means to me. I mean, you could start to break it down a little further down as we go down the tree, but at the highest of levels, a wealth, well-working cybersecurity program will bring that level of confidence. That's what it means to me.
0: How would you, how would you defi- define that word confidence within cybersecurity? Good question. Um,
1: right, so let's take a look at confidence, right? So confidence is an emotion that we receive when things are working predictably and consistently. And so if I know the trains show up every t- day, I don't mind relying on that and that allows me to have confidence in scheduling meetings in the office at such and such a time right because I know I'm going to be there so we'll rely on. So when you start to break down confidence, it is a positive emotion that people can elicit because they know that whatever's beneath that that they have confidence in is going to have that level of certainty. And in a world where we have more attacks on a daily basis, we have more malware coming out than we've ever seen before, at a time when we've actually moved away from a lot of the legacy style attacks, like I just mentioned, with like pure play malware stuff, and we just like focus on credential theft. We're focusing on hijacking identities. These are all areas that, if you're not thinking about it and someone compromises let's say your identity and takes does an identity takeover on you every aspect of your life is starting to get called into qu- every aspect that you integrate with with another person through a system whether it be technical or social is now called into question because that identity is no longer verified you no longer have confidence that the technical components of that identity are there um and so well where can? I, so where i was going with that was actually, i'm gonna lose my thought here so i was thinking about <laughs> that was that's the confidence piece that you gain with that. And so we have all these ranging cyber attacks and when I break down confidence, it's about the ability to trust what's beneath it and then proceed forward and get on with the rest of your life and deliver that mission or deliver that product to market. Um, Did I answer that question properly? I know I kind of took a bit of a tangent there. Was that? (laughs) (laughs)
0: That, If if that's how you wanted to answer it, then I'm totally on board, but Let's let's move on to something that follows on from this. So, why would a company invest in the build or the importance mm. of security? Um, and, and I'm guessing confidence is going to be a part of that.
1: It is, but you're right, it's only a part of the story. I mean, that's a great question, right? So, why would an organization spend a million dollars on a cybersecurity program or spend $10,000 on a cybersecurity service? Um, when they could just as easily turn around and say, "Why don't we put that into AdWords? Why don't we put that into customer retention or customer acquisitions?" And part of the pro, so, so why I think people should do it, I'll go back to answer that question. But let me just start with like a statement. Like when I look at cybersecurity today, we as an industry are not doing the larger um, private and governmental um, agencies. Service because we keep telling cyber telling the world cybersecurity is this special little corner of the universe where we do black magic that nobody understands and it's super complex and there's no way that you're ever going to get to knowing about it so don't bug me just throw money my way and I think this this lack of transparency in our industry has really crippled us for the last seven to eight years and for a longer time and then particularly the last uh, seven to eight years and now. We need to start swinging that pendulum over to having more transparency, and recognizing that cybersecurity is just a business function like everybody else, and should not be held on a higher or lower pedestal than marketing. Then your, so your customer acquisition team, your customer retention team, the people who are making sure your business um, partnerships, your partnership arm is you know, they're all just different parts of the business, serving different functions that together you know, we accomplish the particular mission at hand. So let so I promise I'd answer the question. So why should people invest in that? Well, it goes back to two things. If you take a look at a cybersecurity program that was aligned to, say, the NIST CFS, the cybersecurity framework, and you really boil that down, what you end up with are three major buckets, bubbles, pillars. I call them pillars. Okay, so you have three major pillars. One is governance, risk, and compliance. Are you complying with the law? Are you complying with what you prompt other vendors or other vendors are required of you? Um any legal agreements, all that. That is when you invest, you can do that stuff, but not get any certifications. You can you know, apply and the laws, but not get anything out of that process. But if you want to, which is actually pretty low cost, it's just pretty intense manually to go through and make sure all those checks are there. And then, of course, if there are changes you have to make, that there are some costs, costs there. But going to, say, the certification process of a SOC 2, Type 2, or whatever the case is, when you have those stamps, those certifications, are you invested in that process because it is an additional cost? What you get out of that is marketing material. You get out of a way and you have an opportunity to shorten a sales cycle. So instead of looking at your governance risk and compliance program as this massive overhead that everyone has to go through with these questionnaires and these checklists, just recognize what you've done is by instrumenting that process and working on those flows to be as frictionless as possible, you are now as an organization that is one part of a sales cycle that has been dramatically shortened because we know that customers are getting more and more pressure on third-party risk management, and so if you can help by having prepackaged all that up for your for your customers, then you no longer have to go through a six, eight, nine-week process of doing all those due diligence. Does that make sense? Um, yes. So, okay. So that. So I don't. Kick that horse here, but like, oh, I shouldn't say that. Um, I don't want to belabor a point. That's by the way. I don't want to belabor that point. But anyway, so when you invest in the GRC side of it with the certifications, you're getting something that helps you shorten the sales cycle. That's one way of looking at it. That's one reason you should invest in it. When you look at the other pieces of that, the security architecture and the investigation response, the reason you'd want to invest in, in the architecture, security engineering, side, house, making sure your controls are baked into your development lifecycle, making sure that your code reviews are not happening with pencil and paper, but are integrated into your CI, CD pipeline all the way through. The reason you want to do that is because now you can start to produce products with integrity and you can know that the technical integrity of your product is there all the way through. And again, that leads to a more you have more confidence in the product you put into market. And so that just helps make sure that your, um, if you have confidence in your product, then your net, oh, sorry, excuse me, NPS, your net promoter score, thank you. Your net promoter score, this is the measurement that is used to see how customers um, are scored based on their positive associations with a brand, your NPS score. You can use that to drive up your NPS score because the products that you are bringing to market, are staying in market, they're not being removed because of security issues that are defined after the fact. They're not being taken down because someone has just DDoSed your system, or you know, you're know you not, all this, you have the, you've identified risks and you've put in the controls so that you have the trust with that platform. And then you have the investigation response side. The reason you wanna invest in that last piece, and this is the last piece of the three pillars, I promise. And the reason you wanna invest <laughs> in that piece is that When you have delivered something, you've gone through a sales cycle, you've closed it out, right? You've removed the friction of governance compliance. You've then put a product in market and you have positive NPS impact. Um, You have trust in your product. Now you want to have in monitoring and alerting around when things eventually do go bad, right? When things eventually go bump in the night. By investing in that, you have a – you do have at that point confidence that what – Sorry, you have the trust that comes with the, um, the architecture and then you have the confidence, I guess, dovetailed in that because you know what you've, if anything does go wrong, you can detect it, you can remediate it, and you respond to it well before it has a net impact on your customers or your businesses itself. So the whole thing about this is we can take cybersecurity and we can say it's all about us and it's all about me in cybersecurity feeling good that, you know, we stopped the bad guy, but nobody really cares about the bad guy. We only care about serving our customer. We only care about reaching out to that end state where the person is receiving value at the other end, right? Cybersecurity should never f- be aligned to anything other than the company's mission and driving to that as quickly and as aggressively as possible. And then you can do that in a way while you, valid- you, um, you never go against best practices, right? You've taken all the requirements, all the laws, all the legal pieces, you've bundled them up, you're adhering to all of them, and it is possible to do this, and when you have all those three things working, going smoothly, and that requires a financial investment, you end up with a better experience for the end customer because their stuff is more integrity, has they have more trust in the platform and they're able to purchase it faster. So a bit of a long answer, but that's really what it comes down to. Like why would someone ask me, like why I should invest in cybersecurity? I kind of walk them through those three pillars and with exactly those main use cases.
0: Perfectly summarized. Uh, but moving, moving on to one of the risks that we wanted to talk about today, which was how would you go out and identify vulnerabilities within organizations?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. So there's a few points to so say. So let's talk about vulnerabilities. It generally has a... There's so many different ways that it can interpret. It can be a technical vulnerability, it can be a system vulnerability, it can be a, a weakness in a process flow, um, all these different things. So I really want to say... If for, particularly for vulnerabilities, why don't we just, for the sake of this conversation, define it as a, just a generalized weakness in the system. As a matter of fact, if we can just like take the conversation over to the investigation and response side of the house, you know, how would you detect an attack going on inside your environment? There are obviously leveraging vulnerabilities there. but So let's just, okay, obviously vulnerability is a big word. We're kind of going to break it down. We're going to head over to the investigation and response side of the house on how we'd go about you know, detecting attacks one of the things i find super super important that i find a lot of people tend to miss is this and it's very very simple is this concept of starting with use cases so in the logging and monitoring world where you know so that's that's where you take all of your logs all of your exhaust from your identities your systems your applications these are all creating you know artifacts and of log log artifacts stating what they did when they did it and how they did it and we gather them into one place you start to start to gain visibility into all these disparate systems. And then with that level of visibility, you can start to put logic on top of it, right? At 30,000 feet, that's logging and monitoring. So when you and gets into a SIM and that powers your SOC. So when you have a SIM that's powering a SOC and you're looking for those attacks, a lot of people just start with, great, I have a SIM, turn it on, map everything to the data model and let's see what happens. And that just never works. Um, and actually it does work But you end up with 10,000 alerts, all of them with critical priority and you have absolutely no idea how to triage them. That's what you get up if you follow that. The flip side is detecting attacks, detecting those vulnerabilities it goes into, why don't we just start with use cases? Okay, we have an attack scenario that looks like this. A user trying to scrape our website. We have bots trying to scrape our website, great. We have a DDoS event that comes through forward. We have a phishing attack that flows through. Okay, you start just very simply. You're not going to do it all in one session, but you just break them down by domain. Maybe it's just let's talk about attacks on the endpoint. Let's talk about attacks in the web space in our websites. Let's talk about attacks against our social media outreach. Right, we have people doing account takeovers of our Instagram accounts and posting things or communicating quietly on direct message with our customers in ways that not we're not aware of. Things like that. So, break down by those attacks do that little bit of threat modeling, use that use case, and then walk through life as an attacker. If I was to integrate, if I was to perform this attack, I would touch this system, I would use that tool, I would leverage that API, kind of walk through it, and then go see do you have the logs, and then at that point, you can start to alert on all that. And that's kind of like a very simplistic dumbed down way of doing it, but that it's also much slower than just turning it on and see what happens. But if you follow this slower process, um, you end up with a much higher quality detection rate, lower false positives. And when those attacks, those vulnerabilities in your system are identified, right, then you know what to do about it and how to go about it. So when people say, show me the bad guys or go go find bad guys, that's how I start. It's just saying, okay, let's start with use cases, walk our way through and go through. And I think it's really important to recognize, to tilt that conversation in, and skew it onto how the organization is lined. If you're a company that has no website and you say you're an asset management firm, a private equity firm, what your business has done in Excel and it is done over email and phone calls and it's bank transfers and wire transfer, well, wire transfer fraud is going to be a huge risk on your radar and you want to put that top of mind. If you're an e-commerce site, then the platform that is taking in you know, delivering goods and taking in credit cards, that's going to be the most important thing to spend most of your time doing attack sequences and not the wire transfer, right? So you just kind of, you know, you weight how you create those threat cases, those, that threat modeling based on the organization that you're helping defend. But then you start there and then you kind of go with that flow that I laid out.
0: So, so would you say knowing or understanding your vulnerabilities, would you say this would allow organizations to move forwards or progress from knowing this?
1: Yeah. Um, so interestingly enough, like knowing your knowing your weakness, knowing where you're strong, and knowing where your weaknesses are is a great way to start a threat intelligence program. And threat intelligence means again in cyber, nothing's clearly defined. Everything means everything to everybody else. But if you look at threat intelligence, you you start to if you really boil it down, it's understand like, okay, who am I? Like understanding myself as an organization. How am I presented to the world, both technically and socially? And by, by that I mean like uh, your website, your brand, your presence, you know, those type of things, technically and socially. And so once you understand that, then you start to say, okay, how would I, how would I start to garner leading indicators? It's an important piece of threat intelligence, leading indicators uh, that an attack may, there's attack materializing in the wild that may be coming my way. Um, in some time in a reasonably near future, right? So it's about developing leading indicators that drive defensive action or changes to your defensive posture to counteract that. And you can't do that if you don't know your organization. You can't build a quality threat intelligence program that is meaningful unless you understand who you are both technically and socially inside the larger space.
0: So is a threat intelligence program different to a SOC or how do they relate?
1: Yes, so they are different. They're different capabilities. Um, I say they're very tight, or t- joined at the hip. They're very tightly integrated. When I look at them and I design the programs around them, I keep them close, but I do keep them distinct. And so, what I'm looking for in a SOC, a security operations center, this is your, you know, your classic, you know, 50 guys and gals sitting in a room, looking at big screens, clicking away at keyboards. You know, that type of SOC. But so we have. That's kind of that that vision has evolved and changed. But the heart of what they're looking for is it's detecting bad guys and putting in those technical signals to say, when we see this happen, we need to go investigate, validate and then respond to it. But listen to what I said there. That's all after the fact. A security operations center is about detecting, you know, generating signals and then following an investigation and responding to it. But the attacks already started. The attacker is either there. He's long gone. He's whatever. But it's all posts, all past tense. Threat intelligence is the other side of that coin where it's designed to be forward-looking before it hits your environment. So we want to take a look at the, all the pain that our neighbors have had, so to speak, and all the attacks that they've received in, you know, that are meaningful to me and say, okay, distill those into technical artifacts, atomic indicators are called, and then take those atomic indicators and run them across my environment and see if I've been compromised in the same way. And if I have, then I know about it, you know, uh, when, it, when it was otherwise hidden. So that's a way you can kind of leverage the pain uh, for benefit, the pain off of your neighbors. But then, so that's the technical portion of it. And then there's both the strategic advisories, which is saying kind of, full in the strategic advisory, one of them is saying, hey, we're doing deep and dark web mon- monitoring and we see that people are talking about your brand. People are kind of, when I, these attackers are starting to communicate and we're seeing keywords that mean something to your business. Now. This may mean nothing, but it's a good heads up to say like, your brand awareness, has, in, the, in the worst sense of the word, made itself known to these attackers who, that we're monitoring and they may be coming after you shortly and here's what their conversations look like. That's great if you can get that. That's a very rare instance. It's very difficult to be in the right chat rooms and the right forums at the right time at the right place. Um, but if you can get that data, it's very helpful. But again, that's all happening before the attack comes your way. And then there's the other type of um, advisory which is more tactical and saying, hey, generally speaking, for your type of organization, we're seeing these style of attacks come, and these attackers are changing their tools, techniques, and procedures, and they look like this now. So yesterday they look like X, today they look like Y. And tomorrow, you know, we're thinking they may look like Z. Now this is all well before an attack comes your way, but then you can take that data and you say, Great, we now knew that no, there's a brand new tool or tactic that these attackers are using. Let's go preemptively Set up some signals in the environment, or go talk to the architecture team and see about how we would stop the attack from being successful to us in the first place. Right, so that's kind of how SOC and threat intelligence are two sides of a coin that all serve the same mission. Whereas threat intelligence is that leading indicator, and a SOC an investigation center is your lagging indicator.
0: So, if we look at external versus internal threats, how do you deal with them once you've, you know, built the program? <laughs> um
1: internal versus external threats so when we're talking about so you can have system weaknesses vulnerabilities or you can have threats which are which is the potential of an attacker coming after you right and exploiting that weakness right so if I'm looking at threats really what we're saying is the attacker is either on the inside of the environment or the outside of the environment are we talking so maybe insider threat versus external attackers insider threat so and we, I, kind of, I kind of set it up like that just so we can kind of talk about insider threat. This is a place I'm kind of passionate about. But insider threat is a pretty fascinating space to be in because if you think about it, what you're always looking for in insider threat is a compromised, compromised machine or endpoint and compromised credentials. And we can get into, you know arguments about, yes, maybe there may be fewer thing, more things underneath the hood there, but like those are kind of bubble up the two big things, compromised identities and compromised endpoints. And people say, well, what about the malicious insider? I'm like, well, at the end of the day, either their intentions have been compromised or their accounts have been compromised. But from a technical perspective, it's about exactly the same thing. You have a set of credentials, username and passwords, or auth tokens or whatever, and they're accessing a resource that, to do nefarious things. Or, and if they're doing something that's bad for the company, that's outside of their job description. So you end up in this interesting world of trying to say, okay, how do I monitor everyone's behavior without spying on people, how do I monitor the behavior and put some things, put some things around that without, you know, flooding my investigation center that, you know, these people are doing legitimate business? And how do you, so how do you start to solve that problem? But when you get into the insider threat, you know, data science and specifically statistical analysis and parts of machine learning, have become very helpful in modeling that out. But insider thread is about really focusing on the compromised identities and compromised machines. And then you also asked about external threats as well. Um, that one's a little harder to monitor. You know, Threat intelligence is the program that I would look at to help me develop those leading indicators before the attack hits me. Um, when the attack hits me, it's kind of like, okay, brace yourself. You have a response team for a reason. And so your investigation center, your SOC, they will have capabilities under there. They should have the capability to say, okay, we've seen this before. We've prepared for this. We know that we have... The ability to block IP addresses, block ASN numbers, a whole net block net block excuse me block an entire range of IP addresses, or you know these particular types of um, fingerprints or this that and the other. They know the technical capabilities they have, and then it's about responding and saying, okay, the attacker's coming through. We got to quarantine this. Here's how we identify the pattern and we'll respond accordingly. So um, yeah, like I said, so we need to start the internal and external threats they start to how you approach them and how you detect them start to look a little different just because of the sensitivity of where those users are in the environment.
0: So from what you've said so far, this sounds like an incredible culture shift. So how would you go about implementing Mm -hmm. this into a, into any business?
1: Oh, that's a great question. That's great. Um, yeah, I've talked about a lot of different things from like monitoring, you know, trusted users that you hired specifically to do a job and monitoring that and putting machine learning around that to find different patterns, all the way to doing deep and dark web keyword searches in hopes that you can find conversations that give you leading indicators of attacks. There is a level of which you have to understand the organization you're working in. If you come day one and you're like, we are going to do threat hunting, you are going to get a lot of blank stares and you're going to get a lot of like, "Hmm, maybe we got the wrong guy here or gal here. And so really it's about understanding where the maturity of the organization is and making sure that the security posture and security capabilities and the investment that's required for those are matched where the maturity of the company is itself. It makes no sense to invest heavily in the detection and response side of the house. I mean like standing up the very, very best next generation socks and standing If You've got a 10 person startup. It just doesn't matter. That's one of the beautiful things about these SaaS products where people can stand up a business pretty quickly, like using the Google Cloud or AWS. A lot of those fundamental security things have been offset to these SaaS, these platform providers who've done a good job at giving us the basics. So it is a culture shift. And how I go about changing that culture is really about understanding what's important to the organization. If, like I said, if you're an e-commerce business versus a private equity firm, they're going to look a little different what's important to them. So you figure out what's important there and then you just start adding value to the business. We need to comply with GDPR so that you can go do more business in these regions. We need to go through certification process, um, ISO 2100, so that when you try and so we can more quickly and more effectively land bigger clients in the European markets. We need to make sure that our security architecture is integrated into this so that we can deliver products faster and more securely and win more business. Um, so it's all about taking those things, and instead of saying we're going to build a cybersecurity program because we're cool now, it's about we're building a cybersecurity program because we care so deeply about our customers and, or whoever else. The way, <laughs> that's it. We care so deeply about our customers and the value we're trying to give to them, that we want to, you know, enable that as much as possible. So, I, I know. So it was no buzzword here. It's really about just going back and saying what is important to my organization and never letting go of that. And your cybersecurity program should be so focused on delivering that every day like everybody else is. Now, so that is a culture shift.
0: So to sum up on that, would you say there's a certain company this will work in? Every company,
1: every company. So you think about like the paradigm shift that these, firm, like, these companies have been having, like just generally speaking across all markets in the last 10 years that everyone's beginning to realize, oh, we're a tech company. Historically, people said, oh, no, we're in this business or that business, and slowly people came around, like, actually, we're technology-driven companies, we're all tech companies, and we have to think about technology first. We are going to start entering a place in our, as a collective understanding, that technology without security is bunk. Like, it's a ter- it, it doesn't work for the long haul. Technology with the appropriate security controls is the only way to deliver your value to your customers consistently. That's it. So we, we're we gonna start to move away from this security is an additional feature to security is now going to be integrated into everything we do from day one. And the robustness to those controls, the depth and breadth that you go in those controls, that's gonna look different as the company matures, just like everything else, right? The technical debt you take on as a startup, that's totally acceptable. The technical, the cyber risk debt that you take when you're a startup that is acceptable it is not acceptable when you're a multi-billion dollar company, right? You have to learn how, and that's just part of the growth of the company. And so with that comes that culture shift you were referring to. And that's just gonna, the culture shift's gonna be, we're no longer a tech company, we're a secure tech company. And I'm hoping somebody out there gets a marketing hat on and finds a far better buzz phrase than that. But you know, that's what it's gonna come down to, is that we are gonna, as a collective people, just say, okay, security is now part of everything that we do it's not an add-on
0: so just going back slightly what what would you say is the difference between a threat intelligence program and a threat hunter program
1: oh good point um uh, so let me answer that question in a slightly larger context so remember that three pillars i was talking about earlier the investigation and response pillar so under that pillar you're going to have the cap the capabilities of threat intelligence um, investigations, your sock. So threat intelligence, your sock. Hunting, adversary emulation, and red teaming. Like these are five core capabilities that are required to set to build that out properly. So threat intelligence is your leading indicator. You're getting ready for the storm that's going to come your way, and you want to be ready for that. You want to get a, you want to get notice that the attacker is coming well before they show up on your front door. So that's that. Your investigation in your SOC is, okay, we've detected it and we've gone back. When Now we need to respond to it. Now hunting is this interesting little thing that's kind of cropped up on our industry in the last five years. And it used to be, historically, that if you were an analyst and you were working in a SOC and you cleared out all your tickets and you're like, phew, I have 20 minutes before the next round of tickets come in. What am I possibly going to do with all this free time? You go get a cup of coffee. You come back, and then you start clicking around. You start looking through logs, and you start thinking, hmm, maybe this, maybe that, and you start poking around. And that was kind of the origins of threat hunting, where you started to look for something that you hadn't already found, that you hadn't had a predetermined signal in place that would find something and fire off detection. Remember, the SOC is totally powered by these predetermined signals that your team has created that says, if one plus two equals three, I see that in my environment, I'll create a ticket and we're going to go investigate. I'm going to kick you off from a playbook. So the hunting is saying when everything's quiet, when everything's still, and we run under the premise that I've assumed compromise, that someone's already in my network and they're already poking around or whatever the case is, then you start going for that. Uh, and that's where you start looking for. So that's kind of how that gets differentiated where threat intelligence is leading indicator. Your sock is your signal. Tria kicks off a whole investigation process and your hunting is that quiet space when there's nothing going on now like i said historically the idea was that if an analyst had free time then they would hunt that's kind of no longer acceptable in our culture in a security space people pretty much say at least a day a week if you're a team you should carve out one eight-hour block to go threat hunting course a week they have to be one one day it could, be multi, it could be a couple of four-hour blocks here or there but it is a discipline and it's worth its own time and space To start looking for things that you haven't detected before and really that can start to vary based on the organization you might want to say okay i'm going to leverage the resource of the attack miters miters attack framework and i'm going to say i'm going to grab a ttp a tool a technique or procedure of an attacker and i'm going to say okay how would i detect if somebody was running a metasploit payload in memory I'm like, okay, well, I've got to go look at command line parameters of PowerShell or uh, I'm going to start you know, command and control servers. If someone's compromised and they're talking over a command and control server you know, that's being routed through DNS and they're you know, doing DNS exfiltration, I'm like, okay, it's time to go look at the DNS logs and am going to go poke around and look at different sizing, and shaping of DNS requests. Something that would either be difficult to put a proper signal around or you hadn't gotten around to putting a signal around, that's where threat hunting comes in. And that's how you break that down. So you're looking for things in the quiet when there is no predetermined signal yet. That's where the hunting is.
0: So when you're building these programs, obviously I'm slightly biased in, in <laughs> what I work in, in 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 staffing, but people are the most important part. But how do you pick the right vendors and products to work with? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a good question.
1: Um, on the people side, this... I've kind of had multiple thoughts as the years have gone by and my thinking's changed slightly. I'm currently in a place where when I build a security team, I deliberately try and keep it as lean as possible. I know it sounds like kind of like, eh, what? Um, It's a little different than most people. Everyone's kind of like fighting for as much headcount as possible. But um, I try to be very deliberate in the headcount space because it is such a complex um, puzzle to tackle and there's a lot of lot of ways you can go about it and it can very quickly get out of hand you can try and boil an ocean. So if I try and hire too many people and I come out the gates and I'm like, I need a staff of 20. And the organization is like, huh, what? And like, if I come out the gates and ask for a ton of people instantly, that 20 may not be big for some of these organizations listening, but I ask for a significant portion of people. What ends up happening is we try and solve this massive problem versus if we start small and we say, what is absolutely critical to the business? And we build a program of that and then we grow it organically in a way that's kind of married to the size and value of the business that makes a lot more sense it stops it kind of puts a a boundary around your team and stops them trying to solve problems that don't add value to the organization so on a people per side i try and keep that pretty lean does that piece make sense hope i can yes. explain that well okay cool so you asked, you asked a great question though which is around the vendor space like never has there been a market space in technology that is so ill-defined, with so many buzzwords, with so many old white papers that are just actually marketing slides. And cybersecurity is just terrible for that. That said, we have a lot of cool innovation and we have some great companies and products in the marketplace, but it's um it's difficult to weed through. My rule of thumb is this. I only partner with companies and vendors that I would be ecstatic, that's the word, ecstatic to recommend to my peer group, CISOs and other organizations. If I come and I'm like, yeah, they kind of did the job, i might like, get rid of them, just get rid of them. So I use that as a pretty quick filter to get through of it. Um, generally, when someone is solving a problem in cybersecurity, they're not gonna be the only one solving it, because the market space is so big, it attracts a lot of innovative people who start up their own companies and go after it. So there's obviously a lot of competition, generally, between different solution sets. So if I'm not totally sold and confident in the company, in the people behind the product, then I just get rid of the product and don't buy it in the first place or divest it you know, next year. So that's part of it. So that's kind of an initial filter I put on place. But then it comes back to the other things that you do need. How do you make that selection? And for me, it's how do you stay as lean as possible? I prefer platforms over products. I like to say I want to buy your platform that will solve some of my fundamental, you know, really early use cases, but then I can build on with my team customization and new signals and new use cases that are meaningful to me on top of that. So choosing an EDR platform that doesn't solve one or two problems, but says, here's an open API. You have system access on all of your devices. Um, Have fun. I'm like, that is a far more attractive EDR solution to me. Than someone who comes in and says, I solved these four use point use cases really, really well. Um, Same thing with logging platforms. If you're, if I, like the classic thing right now is a lot of people trying to get into the UBA space, the um, endpoint users analytics It's so confusing even for me. It's like endpoints and user behavior (laughs) analytics space, right? All the machine learning stuff we see going around. that is one that's so complex, that A lot, some vendors are saying, we will only deliver the product to you with very fixed use cases. That's not an attractive thing for me because although those may be the use cases I have today, I guarantee you on Saturday, I'm gonna have a cup of coffee and I'm gonna take a deep breath and be like, that's a brand new use case, I'm gonna to need to build that and I'm gonna want a platform that I can go build it myself on or have my team go build that. And so that's really important to me is that openness of the platform. So open APIs, that, you know, are, are accessible, that don't require extra license keys and all of that jazz. That's an important thing. And a team behind the product that I can be ecstatic about and I can really give rave reviews to my peer group about the people behind that. They're another one. And the third principle is just keep it as lean as possible. If you don't absolutely need the product, don't buy it. See how you can build it, see how you can get the value out of other products. A classic common thing we have in cybersecurity is a lot of platforms can do a lot, well, a lot of products do a lot more, then we utilize them for and you end up in this like ridiculous three-year cycle where year one you install it year two you get 70 percent of value year three you get up to 80 but then you start working on divesting and bringing in its replacement and we never really exercise the full value of these products um and i think we should i think it's really important to be very good stewards of the financial and time resources of your organization as well so anyway that's a bit of a soapbox but you know there are three things i look for right can i be ecstatic about the product Can it have an open API? And um, is it a platform or a point product?
0: See, we've talked a lot about building, implementing products, the culture shift. But how long would you say this all takes?
1: That's kind of like saying I'm building a house. How long does that take? Well, depends on the size of the house. (laughs) Depends on how much you know. Do you want the furniture in the house before you move in or not? You know, there's a lot of different ways you could look at that. Um, I would say, you know less tongue-in-cheek I would say you should be able to your security program should be aligned to the maturity of your business right you should be appropriately sized and scoped for that that's important that means that'll influence how you implement what you implement how you make these changes how quickly changes your culture may be resistant to change or maybe very open to change so that's another friction of change going to be a huge thing on the culture side so I don't know is the fundamental answer because I just don't think I can give that type of answer. But I would say don't, as if, I was, if anyone hearing this, like, just don't try and do too much at once. It's better to really follow like an agile methodology where the whole point is something shipped, something delivered. Having a detection in place that's live and ready to go so you can detect just basic malware day one is far more valuable than waiting until day 90 to have the most robust AI self-learning self-healing system like so building iteratively and getting value quickly is really important from my perspective in the firms and teams that i work with
0: okay let me change the question then if you can't give me a definitive answer on that what does success mean to you through building this program
1: Ooh, that's a great one um Success is the ability to it's about to give can you equip the rest of your team with the tool sets and capabilities that they need to empower and to defend a protective company that you've been hired to protect. Analysis is nice. Protection is a must. So success for me is the ability to detect something that's gone wrong in the network, respond to it with calmly and confidently, and get done with it and close it out and be, and then go back and remediate and do your lessons learned and all of that. And really keep that timeline tight. So your someone's ability to detect something that is the known bad inside their environment and respond to it, I strive for under an hour, but, or the organizations are larger, more complex or whatever the case may be. And so they're gonna take more time. The time's not really the factor here. It's the process. Can you go from detection to response to close out and then fixing the however they got it in the first place in a really tight timeline where people are being along the way everyone who needs to be communicated with is being communicated with and again it's not a, a number or a date here but really it's around do you have the processes and procedures and capabilities so your team can go and protect the protect the firm now that's so let me ask you okay i'm actually going to take that pause and add another sentence to that and say, that's great from a pure play cyber perspective. But then there's also the other half of the coin, which is, what about success as driving business? Right now, we still live in a culture, I'm guilty of this too sometimes, where we look at cybersecurity as a tax. It's this tax on technology, it's a tax on people, it's a tax on our money. And it's like, oh, why do we have to do security? Security is this phenomenal, addition and cultural injection that can be done inside a firm that can really spur things along. So a lot of people in the technology side of the house, they have great ideas and they would love to do it, but they just need someone to come along and champion that two-factor authentication initiative because they're a DevOps guy and they don't have the clout. But if a security engineer suggests it, that's different. right? So there is an opportunity to drive innovation internally inside the business. Ah, that's a huge success from cybersecurity. There's also an opportunity to help step in with your business development team and make sure you know help them close sales better and faster because more and more people are more and more concerned about cybersecurity. right so there's a few different ways that you can define success my organ i've obviously gone into depth about the first one which is about you know detecting bad guys and you know responding accordingly but then there's the other two which is driving innovation inside your own culture inside your own company and then helping business come to a close as quickly as possible and get, bringing in more clients and keeping them and adding value and getting as much value to
0: them as possible so to finish how do we build the next generation of investigation centres
1: uh, that's a good question that, that deserves a whole conversation on its so maybe we should come back and do a part two <laughs> or something because um, we definitely will really it's, <laughs> so start with the fundamentals can you? What's your visibility? Great. What can you see? What you can't see? Have that documented and planned out. Good. Next thing. What is your investigation procedures that you're going to go through? Great. Next generation. Old school was you had a run book. You said we had a piece of paper and we went through these check boxes. We did these things and then we eventually did all this analysis and data gathering and then 72 hours later, someone made a decision. That's ridiculous. We have this thing, this concept called scripting, and we have this language called Python. And a lot of these tools can be woven together accordingly. And that's where like orchestration starts to come into the market. Something I'm really passionate about is the SOAR space, the security, orchestration, automation, response. And just a totally selfish plug here. Um, we actually have a conference that we're looking to stand up, a meetup that we're doing in New York. If any of your listeners are in New York, um, they can reach out. Um, but it's going kind of orchestrated defense. It's all about getting SOAR, pro- Developing a SOC with security operations and orchestration at the heart of it. But anyway, soapbox off, commercial over. Um, I would say that when you start doing next gen, it's like, okay, we have this, we have the signal, we have the visibility and noise, visibility. Now it's time to say, let's have the technology go and pull all the data we need. So we have decisions. Our analysts are making decisions, not being data gatherers. And that's really, really critical. So once we have people making decisions quickly and we've integrated it into the communications platforms that they're already using, the Slacks, the Hip Chats, or whatever in the world, and you have kind of that um, chat ops effect going on inside cybersecurity, then we start to get into a more next generation investigation center, right? So it's about making decisions, not being an analyst. It's about integrated t- communication, not working in silos. Those are two huge things that are going to be part of the next generation of SOCs as they come out.
0: That's a great way to finish. But what I didn't tell you was that every podcast, we finish off with the same 10 quick fire questions. Okay. So you ready? (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) So the first question, what turns you on professionally? These next generation
1: investigation centers, absolutely. Building them, running them and helping other companies discover them and build them as well.
0: What turns you off professionally?
1: When people focus on when people try and scare other people and I start to see the fear, uncertainty and doubt come into the market, yeah, we live in a scary time and there's a lot of bad things that happen. You don't need to freak people out that their grandmother's you know gonna get the wrong pills and they're gonna die because some hacker, you know gets into the medication system. Like people kind of go overboard on that, and it does tick me off.
0: How do you unwind?.
1: Uh, sh- my wife and I, we love to go for walks. And, and that sounds pretty simplistic, but we live—we have the pleasure of living really close to um, a large body of water. So just the ability to stop, unwind, take about a half hour walk at the end of the day and just be together and with no technology, that's a huge shift. That and ice baths, between the two.
0: <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to try?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's so many, I think maybe it's because of the influence of TV shows, Silicon Valley, maybe it's other things, but getting into the point where I can help other startups inside cybersecurity succeed, and whether it be a professional you know, VC fund or something like that, I well, that would be something I'd love to get into at some point soon in my career, is the ability to help other startups succeed.
0: What activity gives you the most energy?
1: Ice baths, where you take twenty pounds of ice, you pour yourself a bath, and you just dump it, jump in for ten, five, ten minutes.
0: That'll wake you up. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I think I think you become my main inspiration just for going through that. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about that, who is your biggest inspiration?
1: Um. Okay, so the public one I would tell people is like, absolutely, I love Tim Ferriss, like I love the work he does, I like her things, I like how he pulls things apart and deconstructs things really well, I love reading and taking in his content, great guy. And I would say, the second one would be my father. I've seen him reinvent himself so many times inside technology and overcome such incredible obstacles, and when I just
0: look at his trajectory and how he's lived out his career, I'd say I get a lot of inspiration from them. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Okay, I'm gonna put an or statement in there.
1: It's either gonna be confidence or it's gonna be
0: empowered, depending on where I go. You are at your best when you are doing what?
1: Bungee jumping while drinking a Red Bull. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say I'm at my best when I'm with the team that i get to where we're all firing on all cylinders where as a team achieving the same objective and i don't care if it's completing a tough mutter or if it's taking off an insider you know going after insider <laughs> insider it's like the whole thing we have a team going after a single mission that's and that's where, that's where i come alive i love that
0: okay now now the questions get a little bit more difficult okay if today was the last day of your life what one lesson would you impart? I would say you should always spend at least one hour of your
1: career on a phone call with Carl and have it recorded for the world to hear. i say that'd be the one.
0: I I can't say I've ever had that
1: before. Yep, That's it. Uh, Or, or I could say always experiment. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to just try it differently and go back to first principles. If you can't, figure out what you're doing in plain, simple English, you're probably doing
0: it wrong. And let's be honest, this was a, this was a big experiment by us both. <laughs> yes. yes <absolutely. laughs> and the last question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates?
1: You helped, you took care of your wife. you built a great life where you helped other people succeed and achieve their, their dreams.
0: That's that's good. I like it. So tell me. Or tell everyone. How how can people get in contact with you? How can people find your work? You know, I I know you I know you've done some writing on Medium before. Um, yes, so yeah, how can people find find all that work? I would say Medium and Twitter.
1: Um, my handles on both
0: are at Connor, C-O-N-O-R, spelled the proper way, Connor D Sherman. <laughs> are you sure that's spelled the right way <laughs> i'm gonna make a whole war out of this uh yeah what's well, the way my mother spelled it on well, the birth certificate so that's what i'm going with <laughs> there we go well perfect well thank you for your time Connor. it's really been a pleasure and uh it's certainly been insightful and uh yeah can't wait to uh see you uh you know building the next next generation of investigation centers
1: thanks carl appreciate your time thanks
0: man Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.